Thanks for joining us today. Our church exists to give everyone, everywhere, every reason to know Jesus. You can learn more by connecting with us on Facebook at Journey Fellowship Denton. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy today's message. Praise the Lord. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to uh, take your Bible. I want you to turn to James chapter 5. And here's what I want you to do as you turn there. I want you to look at somebody next to you. And I want you to repeat these words after me. All Scripture, say it to somebody, is given to us by God and is helpful in rebuking, correcting, and encouraging. You just memorized, you just said a verse of Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is given by God. Today, we are going into a Scripture in James chapter 5 that most of the time, if you are not uh, in a series like we are in, you would just skip over it. Because this is not one of those devil-chasing, hallelujah-shouting, whatever-you-do-when-the-Spirit-comes-upon-you kind of a message. This is a message that is very pastoral. It's very practical. But the Scripture tells us that all Scripture is profitable for us. And so today, as we go to James chapter 5, that's what I want you to be aware of. Today, the title of my message this morning is Money Talks. heard one guy say, if money talks, the only thing it's ever said to me is goodbye. <laughs> and you know, if you got an amen, that's a good time. That's the one time I know you're going to get an amen this morning. My money's always said goodbye. But as we're in this series of going through the book of James, I got to chapter 5 and I thought, Lord, is there some way we can just kind of bounce forward? Because I'd love to talk about the prayer of the, of the righteous man, laying your hands and praying for the sick and they shall recover. That's a good me- message. And we're going to preach that one. Can I just skip over that? The Lord said, no, I want you to, I want you to teach this and, and bear this out. So if you get to James chapter 5, you're going to get to chapter 1. And while you're there, just look at it. And I want you to look at this right here. I have with me a George Washington. And uh, George, George is not what, worth what he used to be. Can I get an amen there? <laughs> George just, he doesn't, he doesn't buy as much as he used to. Um, if you've ever uh, gone to the grocery store in the last week, you'll notice that. Everything is more expensive. Even if you go to Walmart, they're taking more of your money and you're taking less home. Yeah. And uh, Amazon will do the same, except they just bring you less to your porch. You're still spending a lot more, but they're just bringing it to you. But George doesn't buy as much as it used to. And I'm going to keep this because my other one's dead. But... On the back of a dollar bill, and especially on the coins, all of those coins, those hundred pounds of coins, there is a phrase, and you guys know this as well. On the back of it, it's right above where it says one. It says these, these words, in God we trust. As I pulled this dollar bill out and I was getting ready for this message today, I thought about that phrase and I looked at it and I thought, you know, I wonder how that really ended up on our, on our money. How did it end up on our currency? And I started doing a little research and I found out that 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 phrase really began to be percolated in our country during the time of the Civil War. During the time of the Civil War, it was a there was a very uh, there was a, a religious fervor that kind of began to move through the country, and and that's an that's kind of an encouraging thing for us today because that that helps me to know that you know when the nation is is in chaos and it looks like things are collapsing, that's usually when God steps in and says, "Hey, let me show you something." God began to, to, to stir some people's hearts. And he stirred one minister's heart. In 1861, a minister by the name of Reverend Watkinson, he was a minister up in Pennsylvania, and he wrote a letter to the Secretary of the Treasury, and this is what he wrote. He said, I believe that we should recognize God on our currency. That's what he wrote to the Secretary of Treasury. Here's the shocking part. Here's the miraculous part of that story. It's that the government actually responded to his letter. 
1861, Secretary Chase, the Secretary of the Treasury, he responded, and here's exactly what he wrote. Dear sir, no nation can be strong except in the strength of God or safe except in his defense. The trust of our people in God should be declared on our national coins. And in 1861, he handed that off to the, to the, uh, the head of the, of the Washington Mint, and he said, come up with a phrase that we can put on our currency to recognize our trust in God. And Mr. Pollock, the, the, uh, the mint, uh, head of the mint, he's, he put, in God we trust, and on our coins in 1864, he put, in God we trust on our coins. And then in 1951, finally, on old George here, he put, in God we, the, the mint put, in God we trust on our dollars. That phrase is a phrase that is important to us because what it does is it connects the wealth of our nation with the wealth of our faith. In God we trust. And when you look at that coin or, or that dollar bill and you read that phrase, you have to ask yourself this question. Who do I trust in, George or Jesus? Who am I going to trust? In God we trust. I've been working through the series in James and Talk about the missing pieces, what's missing in your faith, what could, what's missing in your mature spiritual life. And uh, today I'm going to talk about wealth. And uh, that's a good one to say, hey, that's what's missing in my life. Come on, Lord, fill that, <laughs> fill that up. Yep, wealth, I'm missing that one. So this is a good message for you to really listen to. But the question is, how should I understand wealth as it relates to my faith? How should I understand riches and money and how much does God and should he be involved in my decisions as it determines to how I make my money and how I spend my dollars? And so here's the big idea that I want to just bring to you today. Either you worship God with your money or you worship your money as your God. And that's the concept that James brings out in James chapter 5. You see, in God we trust, ultimately we have to choose where does my faith rest? Does it rest in Jesus? Does it rest in, in the Lord, in the Father? Or does it rest in the, in the job? Does it rest in the marketplace? Does it rest in the economy? Does it rest in however much I've got of this in my bank account, this piece of paper? You see, Jesus said in Luke chapter 16, verse 13, he says, No one can serve two masters. Either we will love one or hate them. You can't serve both God and money. You can't trust in God and trust in money at the same time. This is just paper. But He is the Almighty God. He is the El Shaddai, the God who is more than enough. And so this morning in James chapter 5, I want to look at three perspectives that you see in these verses of Scripture. Look at it with me in verse 1. He says, Now listen, you rich people. When I read that, I just closed my Bible and said, He must not be talking to me. <laughs> now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Now, if you're reading this and you say, I'm not rich, you might be trying to cheerlead right now. Yeah, that's right. Get them. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Now, aren't you encouraged? Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? <laughs> Woo, I'm glad we had a great time of worship because this message is not going to get it, right? <laughs> what kind of scripture is this? Now you know why I said, Lord, can I just skip over this? The first perspective that James gives us is this. It's the perspective of selfishness. You see, selfishness says what's mine is mine. Now, James has spoken about this previously, and I've, I've addressed this a few months or maybe a month or so ago, and I want to come back to it because everything in our culture, when it comes to this right here, gets politicized and propagandized. Everything. Most of what you hear today and what our kids are taught and what you watch on TV is a result of some type of Marxist ideology 
because in our culture, we are taught that there are only two categories of people. There are the rich and there are the poor. There are the oppressed and there is the oppressor. There are the bourgeois and there is the proletariat. And we are taught from school and from elementary all the way up through our education and formal education, and they double down when they get into college of knowing that there is only two classes of people, the rich, the poor, the good, and the bad. But what you don't know is that most of the time they don't even mention the fact that the Bible says there are four categories. There's not two. There's not the rich and the poor or the good and the bad or the wealthy and impoverished. There are the ungodly rich, and there are the godly rich. There are the godly poor and the ungodly poor. In our culture, all we really concern ourselves about when it comes to wealth or money is we want to know who's rich and who is poor. But God wants to know who is godly and who is ungodly. It's about godliness. It's not about wealth. Jesus, look at him. Is Jesus rich or poor today? What do you say? He's rich. Why? Because he's in heaven. Let me tell you, heaven is a bougie place. When you can pave streets with gold, you got pearls that make your, your fences. I mean, come on, it's bougie. It's slick. Heaven is a bougie place. When Jesus was walking on earth and grew up in a carpenter's home, was he rich or poor? He was poor. Do you know what that excites me? Because that means I can be like Jesus whether I'm rich or poor. Because Jesus has been both. You have to look at wealth like that. You have to look at riches. God is not so concerned about who has what in their life in their possession, in their bank account, as what who has what in their heart. Godliness, ungodliness. In James chapter 5, his comments are directed toward the ungodly rich, thus the strong language, thus the it will eat your flesh like fire. And so the reason why I want to revisit with this, this today is because when you read chapter 5, if you just kind of stumble into chapter 5 and maybe you're a new believer and you come across James chapter 5, you would look at that and say, well, there you go. See, I told you, God hates the rich people. If you just read those three verses, that's what you would conclude outside of the context. But here's what I want you to understand. No, God doesn't hate rich people. God hates ungodliness. God hates ungodliness. You know, because you'll hear people say, well, you know what? That money, it's the root of all evil. That's not what the Scripture says. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 says, For the love of money is the root of all evil. It's not money itself. This has no, this is amoral. This is amoral. There is no moral value in this right here. But in the hands of a moral person, it can do great things. In the hands of an immoral person, it can do terrible things. God is not interested in this worth. He is interested in the worth of your heart. There's a lot of examples in the Bible of godly rich people. You have Boaz. In the book of Ruth, where he comes along, he's a wealthy, a wealthy single bachelor. And he comes along and he sees, he sees Ruth and she's working a day job trying to pick up seeds. He sees her. She's a cute young girl. He says, hey, maybe I'd like to get to know you. He tells his workers, he says, hey, leave her a little bit of extra. And the story goes that he not only ends up marrying Ruth, he takes care of Ruth's ex or mother-in-law that her, her, her first husband had passed away. And through the course of that relationship, they give birth to a line of people who end up go through David, King David, and then end up all the way in Jesus. You see, you can be wealthy and you can be godly. You can also see it in Jesus' time. In Jesus' time, there was a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Jesus was not wealthy. Jesus was, Jesus was going to be taken off the cross, and he's going to be thrown into the, into the pauper's field as a, into the, 
the, the, the valley of, of Hinnom where they, where they just throw the bodies. But not so because the Scripture said in Isaiah that he, would be, he, that he would be buried among the wealthy. And that's exactly what happened. Joseph of Arimathea comes along. He's a wealthy man. He owns, he owns his, his uh, uh, burial plot amongst all of the wealthy people, the well-to-do, the knowns, the, 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 the professionals, the, 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 the white-collar folks of, of his day. And he takes Jesus' body. He anoints it with spices. He doubles the anointing of the burial for Jesus, and he places him in his own tomb. Jesus wasn't, the the plan was not to bury Jesus there, but Jesus ended up in a place of wealth. Once again, Joseph Arimathea, a godly, wealthy man. You see it in the time of of Paul, the New Testament church. An incredible businesswoman named Lydia. Lydia ministered and, and helped Paul out. She was an encourager in Paul's ministry. Paul was on the front line, but Lydia was on the supply line. And she kept Paul preaching. She kept him going. And it took both. And God uses wealthy people. He uses people who have means and whom God has blessed to do the work that he has called people to do. You can be godly and you can be rich, but you can also be ungodly and you can be rich. It works both ways. And what James is talking about in James chapter 5 is he's talking about the ungodly rich. We live in America. And I want you to understand, millions of people do not come to this country because they don't believe that this is the wealthiest country on the earth. It is true. In 2022, just bringing it more local, Denton County was the ninth wealthiest county in the state of Texas behind uh, Collin County and behind Dallas County. I'm not sure where... Tarrant County ranked, but we were, we were one of the wealthiest counties in the entire state of Texas. And so when James addresses the rich, he might have been talking maybe to a group in our area. It's a wealthy area, people who have a lot of money. But if you look at verse 3, here was their failing, and here's what I want to get you to. Verse 3, he says, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. Really, the thing that he talks about in selfishness, he really addresses and he hits hard on this idea of hoarding. Anybody ever watch that show on TV? You people need to get another TV show. Shannon's had that on. I've, I've watched it. I was like, why would you watch that? That is terrible. That is absolutely terrible. Hoarding means that you have more than you can ever use. And you don't consider how to be generous toward those who don't have. That's what hoarding is. James is not describing, when he talks about this hoarding, he's talking about, you know, saving up for yourself. He's not describing government involvement. He's not describing a government and a political ideology where it's, hey, you know, that's why I vote so they can, you know, this particular party can give this money to this person. James is not describing, he's not speaking to a group of, he's speaking to individuals and he says, look, here's what happens. You have hoarded your own personal wealth in the last days. You've not thought about it. And James is focusing on individuals. Can I just tell you that generosity is not voting for someone to steal from someone else. Generosity and Christ-likeness and godly character are not things that can be legislated in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. cannot legislate morality. A lot of people... In our day, think, oh, Roe versus Wade, and we, you know, national, you know, now the states get to decide the abortion issue. Can I just tell you, the issue has not changed, whether it's federal or state. It doesn't matter. You cannot legislate morality. Morality is morality. And you can't pass laws because that's a problem with the Old Testament that, that, that Paul tried to make the statement. He said, look, you can point out the faults, but that doesn't mean that people won't continue to live in those faults. It doesn't give them the ability to change. God gives them the ability to change. You cannot legislate Generosity. Are you listening to me? You can't force people to be generous 
by taking from them and giving to someone else. I've made my wife nervous because I've kind of engaged into the, from the theological into the political, and she's really nervous, and she doesn't like it. I'm telling you the truth, folks. Listen. There's not a law that can be passed that can force Americans to become more generous. There is not a political party that can force people to be more generous. It's about morality. And the only way that you can become more generous is you have to become more Christ-like. Can I get an amen? No one that I know lately has been willing to give up their life for someone who hated them. Right? I don't know anybody that's standing in line saying, you know, pour your abuse on me, curse me, talk about me, and then crucify me because I love you. I don't see anybody waiting in line to do that in Washington or Austin or any other state or any other political figure. See, way too many egos instead of humility. And here's what we have to understand. We have to have generosity in our heart because selfishness says, look, this is mine and I'm going to hold it and it's, I'm going to hoard it and I'm going to keep it. They were, he, what, what James is saying in these verses, he says, look, there's, there's people like this. They have so many clothes in their closet, the malls are eating them before they can wear them. Oh, now I'm getting into serious territory. Oh, boy, I better move on. He says, there's so much jewelry in your jewelry box that before you can even wear it or go through all of your rings and earrings and necklaces and whatever, that's corroding before you can wear it again. Or you bought it on the beach in Mexico, some one of the two. He's saying, look, this is... This is, you're holding back. You're becoming very selfish. Who are the people that have more than they actually need? I'll give you one word. They're called Americans. You know what one of the growingest businesses today is in America? You ready for this? Storage units. We have so much stuff. We can't even keep it in our own house or apartment, so we got to go rent a storage unit to put all of our stuff in. And if that one's not big enough, we go get a bigger unit. Our closets have become the size of our bedrooms. We've got food that we throw away because it's expired and we never did eat it. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm trying to give you perspective because this is not the way it is all the way around the world. And we can become very selfish because our culture, here's what I want you to see, your culture teaches you to live this way. And if you don't get into the Word, and if you don't read the Word, and if you don't read those passages like James chapter 5, the one that I wanted to skip, you'll just be satisfied in saying, you know what, what's mine is mine. Because I'm an American, and I deserve it, and I can do it, and it's mine. And we develop this attitude of selfishness. It's fine to enjoy all that God's given you, Amen. It's fine to enjoy that. If you have more, then what you should do is you should maybe look for ways to be generous and share with other people. James connects the idea of the last days. He talks about misery. He talks about testifying against you. He talks about eating your flesh like fire. What he's saying is he's saying, look, this hoarding, this, this idea of holding things up, they will be considered in the judgment. Because Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, James jumps on this as... This is his big brother that said this. He said, for, every, for wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And James comes back in James chapter 5 and he says, you know, my big brother said this, that where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And I want you guys to understand that you need to make sure that your treasure is in the right spot. Jesus says there's this invisible spiritual connection between your heart and your wallet. There's this connection. And when you learn about yourself, the best way to do that is to look at where you're putting all your money. Look at where you're doing your spending. Can I just tell you that the people that I've seen, and statistics prove this out, that the people who are the most progressive, the most liberal, the most who, who tend to follow this socialistic idea of of redistributing 
income around that they have statistically shown that these are the least generous people. You know why? It's because it's easy to give away someone else's money. Come on. I mean, y'all want me to jump into the weeds today. That's where I'm at. But this is where you live. And I want you to train your mind to be biblical instead of cultural. A lot of people are more generous with everybody else's money, right? doesn't matter if, I, if it's broke, it's borrowed, right? It's not mine. Give it all away. Give it to somebody else. Just spread it around. But that is not what biblical generosity is really all about. It's not what James is talking about. James is saying, hey, how's your heart? How are you? Generosity is your heart being reflected by your spending. So I ask you, how's your heart? How's your heart? Look at where you've spent your money. How's your heart? I know this is up close and personal because this is measurable, right? This isn't some, oh, I've got a lot of love. Well, I don't know how to measure that, but there's a lot of love in me. Let me tell you, this is measurable. Generosity is measured by measurable facts. And that's why it becomes very close and personal to us. And when, when the pastor begins to talk about an issue like this, we get a little bit, oh, man, can he finish up? Hurry. It's because it's measurable. Let me just give you eight things that I've observed in people and perspectives, people that I've seen, personalities and money that I've seen. I listed all these out. Listen to this. You have what I call the hoarders. We've seen the TV shows. These are the people who they keep everything and they spend nothing. They're rich, but they live in squalor. I've seen these people do this. I've been in a house of a person like this. They lived in a rat-infested house, ate cat food, and died a millionaire. I don't know. I mean... You just ask yourself, why in the world would you do this? Here's the reason why people do this. It's because money has become their security. As long as I've got it, I'm okay, but I've got to make sure I've still got it. So they hoard their money. Another person is the spender. The spender, here's what's unique about the spenders. The spenders think that spending cancels out hard times. You ready for this? Spending cancels out hard parts of life. Had a hard day at work? Let's go out to eat. You mean McDonald's? No, we're going to go get a steak. Had a hard day. Heading to the roadhouse. Had a hard week? Well, then I just need to go see if TJ Maxx and Ross and the mall need my money. Had a hard month? Let's plan a trip to Mexico. Spend some money. And we say, I deserve it. I need it. I want it because I need to reward myself for hard times. And spending cancels out the hard part of life. That's the spender. That's a wrong perspective. That can get you in a lot of trouble. Young person, listen to me. We have closets that are full of clothes. They're called hard day clothes. We got a, a racks full of hard day shoes. All you guys are laughing. Just wait. We got a garage full of hard day toys. I knew all the ladies would say amen on that one. Spenders. We spend money to get rewards. Then you have the avoiders. The avoiders, they just they see money and they see bills and it stresses them out so they just don't even talk about them. They get a bill in the mail, they just throw it in a drawer. And they say this, I'm not reading anything until it has red letters on the, on the top of it. Then I'll read it. That's the avoider. Stresses me out. Money just 
I don't want to talk about it. Then you have the hater. Money is evil, and everybody that touches it is evil, so I'm just going to forget it all. Then you have the manipulator. These people use their money to buy influence. There's been manipulators that have come into the church. Pastor, here's my gift. And as I reach out to take it, they hold on to it. Now you know, Pastor. Is this a gift? No, Pastor, I just want you to know. I really think this is what we need to be doing at our church. And you got the flaunter. These are your Facebook fans. Money gives them status through their possessions. And I'm not just saying everybody that faces because I post some things on Facebook. But the reason why they do that is so that people can see them. Because I'll just tell you, a lot of people are like a home that's trying to be sold where a designer will come in and they will stage that home. People stage their lives. And online, it's a stage show. It is beautiful. It is gorgeous. But when you go really into their life, it's a chaos. It's a wreck. It's a mess. And the flaunter will say, hey, look what I got. Look at this money I got. And there's all, their conversation is always, well, what's the interest rate you got on your place? Well, it's 6%. Oh, well, I got it at 5 How's your 401k doing? Well, it's taking a beating. Well, I'm, I've got a good broker. He, he takes care of it. And we have people that look at money that way so that they can show everybody else. And you have the scorekeeper, and that's the person who's always competing, just like what I just described. There's winners and losers. And then finally, I've seen these people, and they're the, they're the, they're the salt of the earth. They're the givers. Because money to them is how I show God how much I love him and love his creation and people. Selfishness, what's mine is mine. Let's keep going. The next, next is found in verse 4. He says, Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves. Oh, God, help us. In the day of slaughter, you have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. What, what James really brings about here is this idea of stealing because stealing is what's yours is mine. And when you steal, you defraud people. That's what defrauding means. It means you owe something, but you don't pay it, or you use something else to pay with them. And the context is here. It's found in this story because in the context of of James, they would be harvesters, and they would harvest, and the proportion of their work, they were paid by the harvest. They would receive a a percentage of what they had of what they had earned from the, from the farm owner. And what was going on is that these guys were hiring them, these day workers, and they would hire them, but they wouldn't pay them. Hey, come work for me. They go to the market, they sell the goods, but they don't pay the workers who harvested and brought in the grain and brought in the, the barley or whatever it might have been. And see, what you have to see is that, is that this shows the contrast between the ungodly rich and the godly poor. And there is a true contrast, and we see that in our world today. Right here in America, we see this principle so prevalent between the ungodly, elitist-type class of people and the godly poor. You see, the ungodly rich are powerful, but the, ungo- but the, but the godly poor are powerless. They're rich. The ungodly rich ruled the courts. while the godly poor were ruined by the courts. The ungodly rich attacked those who didn't have much, and the godly poor didn't fight back. You see, here's the thing that you have to understand as James fleshes this out in those couple of verses. He says, you either love money and use people, or you use the money you have to love people. 
Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, it didn't make the slide, but it says this, God will not forget your work and the love that you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help. Being rich and poor is a very cyclical thing in people's lives. It's generational. It can even be annual. My family, we go back, and I think we've got English blood in us. We've got Irish blood in us. I've got Heinz 57 blood in me, all kinds of different blood in me. When I go back generations... I know that I can trace back to a great-great-grandfather that was an orphan. He was an orphan, and he came out of Tennessee. He had nothing, and he, he ended up in Texas. My family came from a wagon in, from Tennessee, and, and, and they were coming out here, and they were poor. They didn't have much, and they, they ended up in a, in a little place called Stonewall County, Texas. If you don't know where Stonewall County is, you're not missing much. It's got mesquite trees and shinry brush and sand, and that's all there is. There's not a whole lot of beauty unless you like the Flatlander, which that's part of who I am. And I asked my grandpa one time, I said, why did our people stop in this county, in this ugly place? He said, well, he said, they traveled till they ran out of money. And this is where they ended up. I was like, man, I'd have scraped together. So I'd have sold the wheels off my wagon and kept on going. But when they ended up in Stonewall County, they became sharecroppers and they began to farm. My, my great-grandparents were sharecroppers and they picked cotton for other people. You've seen the pictures, you know, where you see people that are pulling sacks, long, long, huge cotton sacks. They're probably about 16 feet long and they would drag them through and they would have them strapped across their chest and they would drag those and as they're pull, picking a, a line, they're just throwing those bowls into that into that bag and dragging this huge... My great-grandmother did that all day long, every day for work. Working for somebody else. But through generations of hard work and a lot of sweat and a lot of heat and sunshine in the Texas West, God began to bless them because they didn't just do that for a job. They praised God as they went, went about it. I never heard my my great-grandparents, I never heard a bad word about them. They loved God. And they sowed that work into their children. And before long, their children, not only did they were able to get their own piece of land, but they got some land and they began to farm their own cotton. And so whatever they made, they got to keep. Today, through the course of several generations, my family now is the only farmers in that entire county. There's not another farmer. In, they are the only farmers, which means they're farming a lot of land. You see, riches and wealth are cyclical. And they can go up and down. They can be annual. They can be generational. And so what you should do is you shouldn't say, you know what, I need to take from this person and give it to that person. What you should say, I need to sow for my children so that my children can have the opportunity to be and to do better than I've done. That's what it means to sow into the life of your kids. Listen to this. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I love what he says. Paul says this. Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is What's it say? So uncertain. It's cyclical. It can change. But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment, command them to do good, to be rich in deeds and be generous and willing to share. And in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. How many of you want true life? That's how you get it. He concludes, and I just conclude, this is my last perspective. It's stewardship. Stewardship is the last blank on your note page because stewardship means what's mine is his. 
Your culture does not teach stewardship. It's not taught at the University of North Texas. It's not taught at, ten, at Texas Women's. It's not taught at NCTC. Stewardship is what is taught in the Scripture. Stewardship means that God is the owner and I am just the manager of everything. You see, in James chapter 1, he says this. He says, every good and perfect gift comes down from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, verse 17. And then in chapter 4, James says this in chapter 4, verse 2. You don't have because you don't ask God. In other words, God, you own it all, and I just need to manage it. Lord, I, this is what I need to manage and to get by. So a steward says this, God, thank you for giving this to me. Now show me how that I can use this for your glory, since it's all yours anyway. Think about it like this. Because here's an Old Testament principle. God says, hey, I'm going to give you a thousand bucks, Vince. thousand bucks. Boom, thousand dollars. All I ask of you is to give a hundred of it away. And then you take the rest. How many of you say, nope, not a good deal? Who's going to say that, right? No, I don't like that deal. Let's, let's renegotiate. I don't like that too much. Now, wait a second. When you say, I don't like that deal, you know why? It's because you think the money was yours to start with. It wasn't yours to start with. A steward says, God, you own it all. Every good and perfect gift comes to me from him. So, God, you give it to me. I'll distribute however you want. And he's not asking for a lot. And so you give because God first gives, and we pass that on. You see, the goal of a, of, a, of a Christian believer in what James is saying in just six verses, he's saying, look, steward wisely so that you can give generously. Steward wisely. Stewarding wisely means you need to know how to manage your funds, managing your money. You know what a steward does, a real wise steward does? First of all, they give back to God what he first gave to them. The second thing they do is they pay their obligations. They don't take that letter and throw it in a box and wait till it comes back in red. The third thing that they do is they spend less than they make. Come on. That's a good steward. They spend less than they make. Then what do they do? They save and they invest. Those five things. How do you be a good steward in your life? Do those five things. Give God his first. Pay your obligations. Spend less than you make. Save and invest. Those five things can make you a good steward so that you can do this. You can give generously. Giving generously means that no one, no one goes without. Because let me tell you something. If our town was full of incredibly generous people, there would be no one who was in lack. But people aren't generous when they're told to be generous. People are generous because God helps them to be generous. Come on. The people that complain the most about people who have lacked are usually the ones who don't give much. Generosity is done in three ways. You can give your time, which is probably the most precious thing now in my life because all of us have a limited amount of it. You can make more money, but you can't make more time. Time is important to me, but I can give my time, which is probably the most important thing that I can give in my life because it's the most precious. You can give your talents. You saw a bunch of stage full of people who are giving their talents, and in portion to that, they have to give their time because they were here before most everybody else was here practicing, getting ready. There was other people who were making coffee. There's people who were making copies this morning. They're giving their talents. They're giving what God has placed in their life. There's a lot of different ways that you can give. And they give their treasure every week. Our church, we give, we support, 
And it doesn't come because, oh, the church doesn't. There's no journey fellowship money tree that we have growing in the back. It comes because your hearts are generous toward the Lord. If I knew where to plant one, I would certainly go buy one. We'd plant it right out front and say, hey, help yourself. It grows great. There's no such thing. I want our church to become even more generous. Let me, there's a, we have a slide. Here's what I want you to do. Over the next couple of months, here's what I want to encourage our church to do. We want to volunteer. So if you have your phone, I want you to scan that right there. We are going to begin to help on a higher level our daily bread. It is, it is a fantastic ministry here in our community. They serve meals to those who are in need. They give clothing. They have a transitional place where they can people can transition out of house. You're saying, you know what? I don't just want to be an usher. I don't want to just be, you know, uh, working preschool at the church. How can I serve in our community? Here's a great way. And here's what happens. If you use this link, and we're going to put it on our website, if you use this link, it will connect you to our church so that when they set up a volunteer day, they know that you're from Journey Fellowship Church. And we're all going to go that signed up. It's not working. Should be working. Okay. And we're all going to go as Journey Fellowship. We're going to represent. And we're going to say, hey, look, we are generous in our community. And we'll go and we'll serve. Maybe you can serve breakfast. Maybe you like to cook. If you like to cook, you know, or serve, be a part of that. You know what? What I've found is that most people, the best thing that you can give them is just a nice, good smile and give them a little bit of your time. Selfishness, stealing, that's not what God wants. He wants stewardship, and that's what James is talking about in James chapter 5. There's a capacity in each one of you to be incredibly generous. As I explained in Wednesday night in Bible study, everybody starts out with a pipe. And as you become more generous, God says, I'm going to increase the size of your pipe so that the blessing of God can flow through you in greater measure and in greater length. Allow God to increase the capacity of your life so that you can bless others. I'd like for you to bow your heads. Daniel, would you come? Here's what I want to do today. I want you to make two decisions. I want you to first decide, Lord, I want to be more generous in my life. I want to be more generous. I want to give more. For most of you, that should be a very easy decision. I don't know anybody in this room who would say, you know what, I want to be more stingy. I want to be more selfish. I want to be, I want to just hold it all. No, you're probably saying, you know, I want to be more generous. I want to give to other people. Well, the only way that's going to happen is you have to then become a better steward. And when you commit to be one of the, to those both, God gets involved in your money. God, I want to be generous. God, I want to be a better steward. God will get involved in your finances. I'd like for everybody to do this. If you have a purse, if you have a wallet, your credit cards on your phone, whatever. I want you to get out. I want you to hold that in your hands right now. I want to pray over you. Because here's how we're going to conclude our service today. I want you to hold that. Hold your wallet, hold your phone, whatever you got your money in. If you're stone cold broke and you don't have either one, just put your hands in front of you. Here you go, Lord. I'm empty. Fill them up. I want, you to, I want you to look at that. I want you to just kind of bow your head there. I want you to look at that wallet or your purse or phone or whatever it is that marks an image of your financial situation. We're going to pray, and this is the prayer you're going to pray. Lord, I want to be more generous in my life. I want to be known as a giver. But, Lord, you've got to help me to be a better steward. I want to do it your way. And you have to commit to both. God can't say, okay, yeah, I'll we'll just let you be generous because he can't let you be generous. He can't bless you with, gener- with that generosity unless he can trust you with the financial ability to steward it correctly. So I want you to look at that. And I want you to pray this prayer. I want you to say, Lord, let me see, let me see exactly, Lord, where it is that I need to change in my life. 
Am I, am I not putting you first in my finances? Lord, am I not taking care of my own obligations? Lord, am I spending too much? Lord, am I saving anything for my kids? Lord, do I even have a plan for investment for the future? Here's what happens. You have to give that right there that you're holding in your hand. You have to give that to God. You have to give it to Him. And here's what happens. When you give that to Him completely and solely in your mind and in your heart, He begins to transform that and take what you have and He begins to multiply it. This is not some televangelist, milky, sow your seed faith kind of thing. This is the truth of the Word of God where it is you place your wealth in the hands of the Lord because it's not yours to begin with. It's His. It all comes down, if you believe James chapter 1, verse 17, all good gifts come from Him. If you believe that, then say, Lord, I give it all back to You. It's all Yours, Lord. Multiply it in my hand. And you'll begin to see the loaves and fishes type miracles that begin to occur in your life. And he will take that paycheck that you get paid on Friday, and he's going to stretch that. And at the end, if you put him first, he's going to make it to where at the end of the month, you'll have more left over than you had the previous month. You have to trust him with your finances. Some of you are looking at college. Some of you are looking to buy a house. Some of you are saying, you know, in this climate of culture. There's no way. It's impossible. Baloney. You serve a God who owns it all. He can supply your need. He can meet every need. Not just that, but he is Jehovah. Uh, uh, he He is our supplier. He is El Shaddai, the God who's more than enough. He doesn't just give you what you need. He gives you more than what you need so that you can be generous. So hold that wallet and let's pray together. And you commit those things to generosity and to stewardship. Father, I thank you, Lord, for this day. I thank you, Lord, for the Spirit of God that we have felt all morning. I pray that, Lord God, that you would take your word, Lord, that is truth. And no matter the subject, Lord, you take, Lord, that truth and embed it into our hearts. And may we live according to it so that we can find blessing, not just in our hearts, We may find blessing, Lord, in our finances, in our livelihood, and in our life. Lord, make this church, Lord, make every person in this room, Lord, who made this commitment today. Lord, I pray that you would make them, Lord, even more blessed so that they can be more generous in everything that they do. Lord, in this difficult economic time, Lord, in in our nation and in the world, Let your people, let your people be blessed to thrive and to live abundantly, Lord God, and to not concern themselves, Lord, for what, how they're going to pay the bills because, God, you are going to supply more than enough as we put you first. We give these things to you. We give our finances. We give our wallets. We give our jobs. We give our our, our livelihoods to you so that you can bless them, Lord, so that we might be more generous. We thank you, Lord, for today. Let your spirit be upon us. Bless every person today as they go. Watch over them. Touch those who are sick today, Lord. Touch George and touch Jan and Troy, Lord God. Touch Don. I pray all those, Lord, who are sick in our church. Touch them today. Be with them, Lord. And let your name, Lord God, be known in this city because of a church that is generous toward you and generous toward the world. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. God bless you. Walk in it and live in it. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you were blessed by this ministry, we want to encourage you to share it. And if you don't have a church home, come join us any Sunday at 1030. 